I'm here today with Bruce Reyes Chow. Bruce is a kindness enthusiast, a Presbyterian pastor, leadership coach, spouse of 30 years, and parent to three children. He spent the past 25 years working with individuals or organizations, helping them to work through conflict and change, having to do with technology, race, relationships, religion, leadership, and change. He has seen most breakthroughs when kindness, the ability to see the humanity of the other, and then behave in a way that honors that belief, is embraced, embodied, and expressed by all involved. Bruce, Bruce is the author and contributor to several other books. Um, one is called, But I Don't See You as Asian, Curating Conversations About Race, and another book called Rule Number Two, Don't Be an Asshat, an official handbook for raising parents and children. Um, but we're, what we're really here to talk about is his new book that is just coming out. Um, it's called In Defense of Kindness, Why It Matters, How It Changes Our Lives, and How It Can Save the World. So, Bruce, it's really an honor, a pleasure to uh, be here with you today. Great. Thanks for having me. Well, uh, I've been watching, you know, your work from afar and have uh, really enjoyed it greatly and I'm glad to have the chance to uh, finally interview you and, and work with you a little bit. Um, so before we kind of get into the new book, maybe you could tell folks in a little bit more detail than what I just gave about your background. Yeah. Well, one, everybody should always have a written bio sense everywhere that they get to write. And because you sound, it makes yourself sound really good. It's great. So I love hearing that every time. <laughs> I, oh, that's right. I did write that book. And I love watching, <laughs> I love watching people as they have to read the title of our parenting book about the don't be an asshat, because I think folks are like, oh, I'm just going to, I have to go and say asshat now and record that and put that on the interwebs for, <laughs> forever. Uh, but yeah, so I'm, uh, so again, good to be with you all. Um, just a little bit of bio, I'm, I'm Northern California, born and raised. So I'm a West Coast kid, Northern California kid, um, half Filipino, half Chinese. Both my grandparents immigrated from China and the Philippines, um, come out of a, church in Stockton, California, where I grew up, Stockton and Sacramento. Um, it was uh, one of those churches that uh, was started out of uh, crisis. It was started out of the farm workers strikes in the Central Valley and the Filipino community gathered together, Filipinos who were not Catholic. And uh, they connected to the Presbyterian church who had a relationship in the Philippines. And that's the church that I grew up in. I had a really positive um, apparently a very progressive church experience. I didn't really know I came out of a progressive church until I went somewhere else. And I talked about what we were, we were taught and like, oh, you're at a progressive church. I'm like, oh, <laughs> is that what we call it? I just called it church, but okay. Um, I've been pastoring uh, in the Presbyterian Church USA for the last 25 years, have done uh, interims, have, uh, I started a church in San Francisco, um, and now the pastor and head of staff at First Presbyterian Church of Palo Alto, uh, and enjoy um, having a, a kind of feet in uh, the pastoral world and that life, and thinking about how we as culture, community, faith impacts the world for good. And I, I kind of love holding space in both because I think it um, it keeps me connected, uh, and finding communities that enjoy that conversation uh, has just been. Um, just a thrill of mine. So yeah, I've been at this congregation now for um, about 18 months, almost 20 months. So I've actually led more worship experiences online than in person. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I'm thrilled. This is an older congregation that's trying to figure out how to retell its story. 
And they have just they've just glided right into online worship and remote worship uh, far better than anyone or even themselves would be expected. So we're that's great. Yeah, doing some new things. It's going to be fun. Kind of headed out of pandemic whenever that begins to happen. Wonderful. Well, that's very cool. I mean, you're right in the heart of Silicon Valley where I spent a lot of time in my career. And so hopefully uh, all that technology is rubbed off on everyone. Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I had better internet service in San Francisco than I do in Silicon Valley. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, because it's not as dense. This is a learning for it's not as dense. And so I had I had fiber in San Francisco. I move out here and I'm like, oh, what's this cable thing I got to so wow. Yeah. It's, and so I, I get these moments of like, your internet is unstable. And I'm like, I'm in Silicon Valley. This should it, not be happening. should not be the case. <laughs> Tap into Stanford. You know, exactly. 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 <laughs> run a really long cable from, uh, yeah. <laughs> from Stanford. So um, as I mentioned earlier, you've written several different books. I mean, you tell us about some of the earlier books before we get. Yeah. Into yeah. So I, um, as I share with folks all the time who, uh, help build platforms and brand people. I'm like a brander's nightmare because I am uh, interested in and feel like I, I, I know just enough about a lot of things and I'm engaged in a lot of things. Uh, so I've written a, a couple of books in, in the past. Um, one I wrote a long time ago, one called The Definitive-ish Guide to Social Media and the Church. And it was one of the first kind of, okay, so there's this Twitter thing out there how do we actually use this in the life of the church? Not just the technical pieces, but began to look at some theological reasons and some cultural reasons about why and how we could just use a platform. And so I walked through at that time, a lot of the different things were happening. So I wrote that and I've been engaged in social media technology for many years after that. Um, wrote a book on race, uh, really looking at microaggressions and, and finding ways to actually have conversations about race. You know, I'm not an academic. This is not a, you know, crossing the lynching tree kind of book. It's, I, 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 I need a starter book on race. And that's what a lot of folks have thought of the, of the one I wrote called, I don't, but I don't see you as Asian. And then my wife and I wrote a book, which I'm really proud of. It's the, the don't be an asshat book. Uh, and it, so it's not a church book. So you're not, you're not going to see that book sitting on a lot of <laughs> church uh, bookshelves, though a lot of, I can't, we, we played with this idea of, creating a fake like brown paper bag cover so people <laughs> in churches could read it and not feel bad. Uh, but it, it, what we've done, what my wife and I did is we basically sat down and we just made a list of all the things that we want to pass on to our three children. And we had to narrow it down. We, I think we came to 101 and it's everything from, you know, understanding um, about the importance of, of protest and about social change to, two or three of our favorite recipes that you got to keep going to, you know, uh, practical kind of household things to, and we, we touch on sexuality and alcohol and all the other, like we just do everything with the idea that we, here's the things that we believe are important. And we wrote it not just for children, but for the parents as well. Cause it's a, a way for us to begin to think about how do we have conversations about really the breadth of our life where none of us are one dimensional, and so we are kind of trying to, to share some teachings about what it means to parent in a world today. Um, and then I've written some prayer books and, and contributed to some, some other things. But uh, yeah, so that's why now I'm doing, I wrote a book on kindness. I love, uh, my publisher came up with the idea of, 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 kind, of kindness enthusiasts, uh, which I think was a really interesting way to talk about it because apparently that's what I am. Um, and so it, have really enjoyed kind of putting this together 
thinking about this as a as not just a, a tactic to, of a way of being, but as a way that we approach that we live and love in the world. And so putting this all together and thinking about that um, has been um, uh, pretty exciting. So I'm glad to, that it's finally coming out. Cool. Well, that's it's sounds exciting. I haven't had a chance to read it yet because it's just not yet quite available. Well, it's, but well, it's really good. So put all your reviews <laughs> out there now that it's excellent. You know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm anxious to to read it honestly. Um, but um, tell us a little bit how it's structured. What, what's sure? The- yeah. So um, I, I structured it in a way that touches upon just how can kindness and so the the first thing i do is i talk about what is what do i mean by kindness and and how i begin to define kindness is basically that that we all believe that every individual is is a created and complex human and then we actually treat them as if we believe that to be true so it's one thing to say yes i you're you're complex and you're not one dimensional and then go about my day but then to actually decide that i am going to it's going to impact how i treat you in the world I, that's that's the crux of it. So I, I do a little bit of that. I, I, I debunk and kind of challenge this idea because I think a lot of people think that kindness is just being nice or it's about avoiding conflict or it's about just just everybody get along. And, you know, and I, I really push on uh, if that's what you believe kindness is, I think you need to re reconfigure your definition of kindness. And so I do a little bit of that. I, and then I so I, I kind of do big picture um concepts. And then I begin to land the plane with what does it mean to have, uh, you know, I ask questions about why is it difficult to be kind to the people that we're closest to? Sometimes we're the meanest to people who are right near us. And I, I unpack that a little bit. I talk about kindness um, and things like um, saviorism. Uh, you know, I think people sometimes think it's kind to just, I tell a story about going to Haiti uh, right after the earthquake and stepping into a hospital. And they said, here's the junk for Jesus room. And here's all this stuff that churches think we need. And it's just this huge room of these boxes that people send because they think this is the kind thing to do. And, wow, you know, never, I mean, it's this, you know, and, and, you know, I think every church has to community as you're trying to help during crisis. Are you upholding colonialism and marginalization? Are you actually helping people? Right. So I do that. I do stuff online. I do, uh, kind of everyday things, and I, the, my everyday kindness one. I use the an illustration of uh, everything I've learned about kindness was at school drop off, <laughs> and I just talk about all the ways in which we can see other people in this everyday exercise of dropping your kids off at school, and all of the awful ways we treat each other there. That all we just need is a little tweak to our lens, and maybe we could impact the world a little better. So I, I, I touch on a lot of different topics around what does it mean if we use this lens of you're created, you're complex, and I'm going to treat you that way. Um, what does that actually look like? Each chapter has some questions at the end for personal reflection and group reflection. Uh, and so hopefully it's a, it gives you a, a broad swath of ways we can engage and use kindness in the world. Well, very cool. And it's so needed right now. I mean, yeah. we've had a very unkind environment. Um, you know, what's in our country and our culture here for at least a few years has gotten less kind, I would say, uh, over the last several years. Um, and I know one of the parts of the book, you talk about kindness as it relates to social media. Yeah, yeah. Social media politics. I think those are the ones that, um, you know, there's part of me that wishes 
that wasn't so popular because it just means that it's it's such a difficult space to live kindness in. Uh, so I, when I, I do a social media thing and I and it starts because I got trolled by Roseanne Barr at one point and which was just it was so bizarre. I was just like, what is going on? And, you know, and, and uh, but just talked about like how I responded, how other people responded to an obvious um, a person that was not in, interested in really engagement, right? It was just to stir things up. And I think that's one of the pieces around when we, when we live in the world with a view of complexity and creation and that, um, you know, every invitation to every online battle you're invited to, you actually don't have to accept. And I kind of talk about this idea about kindness is also to ourselves that sometimes we walk away from things because that is not good use of our time and energy. In fact, it only escalates and reinforces this idea that that one dimensionalizing one another is a valid means of interaction. And I just I simply just reject it. I, I refuse to buy into it. I refuse to engage in, with people who want to perpetuate that. And so the politics and the online world, I I think the lens of kindness challenges us to be more multidimensional ourselves, as well as to see that others might be. Um, and so engaging in people with people and finding out uh, the online thing, is, for instance, when somebody comes at me online, I actually go and look through their thread and take the time to see, is this somebody who's actually looking to engage or are they just out there trying to, you know, tweet bomb people? And, and if they're not, I don't, I don't even respond if it's clear that they're just going out dropping stuff. But if it's somebody that's engaged with people, I'm like, Hey, looks like you want to engage. What questions do you have? And I've done that on multiple occasions. And I think that just models, uh, not just for me and that person, but as folks watch us interact, they see a different way of being. And so I think for those of us that are engaged online, um, interacting in a way that models how we would want to be approached Uh, is such an important thing, but it's exhausting and it's tiring and it takes time and it's a choice we have to make every day. Uh, But if we're going to, if we're going to complain about how awful the world is online and politically, at some point we have to engage it differently. And, and this is my challenge of the book is to get up every morning and decide that we're going to look at the world through a different lens and, and whether we're up for that or not. I mean, I think that really is a question for all of us. Wow. Again, so needed right now. I mean, that's just fantastic. I mean, I, I, I really need to read the section on social media <laughs> for myself because I struggle with that. My- yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's easy, right? Cause it's so easy. We see something. Um, I, I, one of the things I think we, that doesn't really matter where you are ideologically or theologically or politically that I think we in, in, in inadvertently engage in practices that you know, I'll just take our the 45th president, you know, Donald Trump during his time and my more progressive friends and those who kind of are were, you know, uh, very much against what he believed and did and policies, all that kind of thing. You know, I would have to call my friends out when they would engage in ableist kind of behavior. Right. When they there was a, a time when uh, President Trump at that point had a had problem holding a glass of water and walking down a ramp and you'd have thought that anybody who had any kind of physical difference in ability was incapable of any kind of intellectual exercise. But yet that's what often happens is we go for appearance, behavior, you know, ability, physical ability, anything like that. And what that then says to our, you know, differently abled community is like, so this is what you really think about us. 
right? So I'm really pushing on us to, to take the time to be careful and tender with our words um, wherever we are, because it's so easy not to be. Exactly. And, and, and we just then end up hurting other people that we had no intention, but I'm one of those like intention in some ways doesn't matter to me. Like we have to really be much more cognizant of the words that we put out into the world. So, you know, in some ways I hate to touch on the subject, but I feel like I, I need to ask you about it because yeah. it's been so problematic, which is all the hate crimes against Asian Americans. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think for, for me, so if you were to talk with a lot of Asian Americans, this is not new, right? This is, these are things that are not new to any folks of color um, in general and, and marginalized groups. And so there's, you know, I'm, I'm always conscious of where people enter the conversation um, you know, some folks are for the first time going, oh, my gosh, we didn't know this was happening. Um, I'm not, I am not one who's a guy to be like, oh, my gosh, how can you not know this is happening? I'm much more of a, well, here's how it's been happening, um, you know, and, and since since the, the big case of Vincent Chin in the 80s and kind of all of the ways that it's happened in the past, here's how it goes. And now what we're seeing is an increase and more visibility. And so part of how I approach this in my world you know, somebody who's been active in Asian American community for a long time, um, it, you know, have have lots of friends who are involved in organizing and uh, uh, policing and those kinds of things is um, what I want us to do is to make sure that in our support of Asian Americans, that we aren't um, in, in some ways then reinforcing anti-blackness, that we're not uh, reinforcing an increase in policing. Because oftentimes what happens, what we hear, because a lot of the early attacks we saw on TV was African-American folks against Asians and really trying to engage this a much more complex lens as we look at this. Like what's happening, we need to look at the root causes of why things are happening and why, how did we get to this point and trying to push us to be more um, complex and thoughtful about how we even look at our responses to it. Because I think um, it's so easy to fall back into tired tropes about other groups, and we just need to not do that. So, um, you know, it's unfortunate. I think it was stoked. It's been stoked politically, um, you know, and, and I don't give a lot of my energy and time to, to, to the 45th president at this point in time. But I think, you know, obviously um, him and, his, and, and that culture reinforced this idea around uh, Asians and the coronavirus. Um, and there's, yeah, and there's lots of things that go on with that. So I'm looking at how does this create solidarity? How does this um, create awareness? How does this move us towards a more healed community in the future? I mean, I think that's really where I am around wherever anybody enters into the conversation about the recent more reporting of uh, hate crimes against Asian Americans. Well, um, you know, we talked before our interview about the How to Heal Our Divides project that I'm working on, right? And, and yeah. so I'm always asked the question, what do we do about it? Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, I mean, do you have any suggestions for, you know, the rest of us who are not Asian Americans? What should we yeah. do other yeah, than? I, yeah. So I, I think part for that in particular, so I think there's, um, I, I love the fact, so I'll, I'll say, um, I love how active people are on social media and especially as you're watching um, generations around Instagram and some other ones and how much education is going on in, in light of um, uh, the way that social media is being used. So I actually really appreciate when folks are engaging people who are doing the work and sharing out 
um, some of the deeper dives into some of the learning versus uh, one or two, um, uh, you know, kind of story shares. It's great, but there's so much good teaching happening now on Instagram in particular that helps people dive deeper into the history around solidarity between um, Asian Americans and black activists over the years and really looking at how that, so that, that I want folks to take the time to educate themselves about history that informs then how we look at one another, right? I mean, it's easy for a larger culture to look and say, oh, Korean black, you know, we, we think back to LA riots. We think back to um, times that uh, it was, there, there was so much tension without knowing that there's been history before that of great solidarity and movement together. And that's really what should be our bond, right? So taking time to be educated, you know, I think, um, you know, I, I would, I would say that, you know, there's, depending on your communities and where you are, every interaction that we have with anybody, I think either builds up trust or it tears it down. I think there are very few neutral interactions. So whatever town city you're in, as you're walking the street, as you're um, visiting establishments and stores, how we interact with one another, what we do, what we say, is it a, is it a trust building experience or is it a trust destroying one? And I think having consciousness around how we approach those things, how we use our resources, what we fight for in budgets, in uh, education and other kinds of things. I mean, there's all kinds of ways, but um, to think about every interaction as being trust building and trying to make it so um, is, is just a, is one way to approach pretty much everything at this point. But getting educated about kind of the history of Asian Americans is a, is a huge first step. So Bruce, independent of the book, you've also been doing some interesting work on hybrid church. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Oh, oh. so I've always been, so I, I grew up in, in high school in the eighties. I learned how to code Fortran, COBOL, basics, oh, man. all that stuff, right? I learned all that in the eighties. It was a very early oh, stage. So did I. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I, I went to a high school that was kind of in the in the rough part of town. And so um, IBM came in and they gave us a brand new computer lab. It was one of the first ones ever. And that was when we made that transition from typing to keyboarding class. <laughs> like that was that. So I learned all that. What I discovered is I coding. I'm like, whatever. I don't like that. I love what comes out of it. Like, how do we use this to, I, even then I was like, all right, what are the games we're doing? How are we using this to engage one another? So, um, and, and, and every ministry that I've been part of or led has always had an online element. I've always tried to push us just a little further to think about this as a platform, to not give it too much power, but to understand how much engagement this can create for good. And so um, over the last, I don't know, 10, 12 years, I've been, uh, really involved with um, social media and technology and church life and have led I, I ran for a while on Twitter. We had a worship on Twitter every Sunday, a group of us just had a service on Twitter. Hmm. Uh, and, and, and I, we started an online church years ago that got huge and that just ended its first, its small groups that just started, ended about two or three years ago. Um, and uh, now when we moved into pandemic, um, I don't talk about silver linings to pandemic. There've been far too much suffering and death. I've lost my grandmother to COVID that we've multiple relatives. And, but one of the things that it has forced churches to do is to think about what's important. It's helped us think about 
how adaptable we really are. Cause I think some of us have found out that we're not as adaptable as we thought we were. And it's decided it's helped us to figure out is how we're forced into using technology that many of us wanted the church to get to, but it was going to take many, many years. And now all of a sudden, boom, you're either this or you're not seeing each other. So this last year has been, so I enter into this process, super eager, like, all right, let's do it. We, we actually started online worship a, a week before shelter in place got put down so we could prep all of our people. We started a thing called tech deacons, which everybody are using now. Like just, we basically ordained people who saw mint technology as ministry to help people get set up. And then we started our online experience and it has, we have uh, grown like many, we have um, had a meaningful worship experience. The way I talk about it is our worship is meaningful. It just happens to be online and that we take advantage of the platform. We don't stream. We just Zoom uh, so that we can take advantage of all of the playfulness of Zoom. And now what's happening is churches are having to decide we are forced into it before. Now we're not forced into it. What are we going to do? And everybody was like, well, we're going to do hybrid. And I think what happens is folks are like, you know, I'm like, well, what is that to you? What does that mean? <laughs> exactly. You can't just like, we're just going to do hybrid. <laughs> so I've been working with churches now for the last, I'd say, a good four or five months, helping them think through what does it really mean to be hybrid? It's one thing to stream, right? That is easy to pull off. Churches were farming churches were doing that beforehand. It's another thing to do hybrid. And how I define hybrid is that whether you are in that space physically or remotely, you are essentially having the same worship experience. Mm -hmm. At the same time. At the same time. So we don't pre-record anything. Hmm. We, I, I lead, we record it and post it later, but I lead in the moment as I would in any worship experience. And, you know, as I tell the folks, like, this is a muscle that I have been working on for decades, but not everybody has. And so it's trying to figure out how do you lead worship now in this format that, you know, people, you're like, it's just so difficult. I'm like, well, it should be hard. If you haven't been leading people in an online experience, it's like, I, I kind of joked with people that, that, and I'm like, you think that this is just something I wake up in the morning and I was just able to do? <laughs> right? I mean, it's actually taking a little work. I put my 10,000 hours in. So, you know, I mean, I think that that, so we've been having a lot of conversations about not just the equipment, because I don't think it's, it's bound by equipment. I think any, I have a couple of friends who are doing churches in small, small churches, yoked communities that are, are doing hybrid experiences. It's just a matter of mindset and really thinking through changing the culture of a church, that it's not just a penultimate experience of our community is not in person. It's now just engaging in the life of this community that has a historic flavor of Palo Alto, but now we're, we're boundless. Uh, and the way I think about it theologically is um, for years, I have stood and pastors have stood behind a physical wooden table. And we have said, this is where the body of Christ gathers. And we have metaphorically talked about this table that is beyond the walls. And now we're being challenged to decide if we really believe that. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. Now, yeah. Right? now the table is as Many people are who are going to fit and watch or interact. And I think a lot of folks are really uncomfortable with that. 
because hmm. a, a table that's actually physical and people are in is controllable. And this is, this is not anymore. And I think it's, um, it's bad. I love it. I just, this is, um, I love this medium. Um, I love in-person worship as well, but I just think there's so much more we can do uh, when we fully embrace a hybrid world. So um, I would invite, I would invite folks. Um, I have a bunch of free stuff that I give out. You can go to um, uh, www.reyes-chow and there's some links there. You can connect with me online on Twitter, or Instagram at breyeschow. And I give all that stuff free. The thing that I would encourage folks the most is there's a group on Facebook called Zoom Faith. And it's about 27, 2,800 people now who are folks who are really doing worship just on Zoom. So if you're doing other stuff, that's fine. But these are all people who are using Zoom as their primary piece. And it's great. It's everything from small conversations. Like the people come in and I'm, I'm very clear. It's like you can ask the most simple question or you can ask the I have model X5936 of this microphone and it doesn't <laughs> plug into that. And there are people now they're like, okay. And they answer both of them. I mean, it's, it's such a lovely community. I meet once a month with about 40 people for a free coaching session. So if anybody wants to join that with us, I do that the first Monday of every month, just to talk through what everybody's doing, how we might do this better. I want people to have meaningful worship experiences. And if you want to do that hybrid you got to do it well and really think about, think it through. So that's kind of the big stuff that I'm doing right now. That and is so trying, awesome. Yeah, yep. And then trying to launch a book and pastor a church. <laughs> In your spare time. In my spare time. Well, that's awesome that you're doing, you know, so much, you know, technology wise and kind of forward thinking wise to help all these other churches. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I'm, I'm grateful for the congregation that I serve. They really see as part of their calling to share their pastoral leadership and, and, you know, I've been doing this stuff nationally for a while. And I think when I came here, that was just an assumption that, that I would get, they would get to be a laboratory, which they love. Like, they're like, okay, let's try this. It seems like if Bruce isn't worried about it, let's go ahead and try it. Like, and I, I tell our staff and others, I'm like, we're actually not an emergency room at a hospital. Like if we mess up, somebody's not actually going to die. <laughs> It'll be okay. Like if we mess up, we mess up and we'll fix it and it'll be fine. Wow. Well, Bruce, it was so wonderful to spend some time with you. I uh, really appreciate your work. Uh, thank you for this new book. I, I think it's going to be a bestseller. Uh, it well, I wonderful. hope so. That would be great. <laughs> and uh, I look forward to, you know, further collaboration. I think we have some great opportunities together. So great. Well, it was great to get to know you and all the stuff, exciting, fun stuff that you're doing. And so look forward to working together. Sounds good. Thanks again, Bruce. All right.